Did you know that in the late 1600s, a group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment to fight for better working conditions? The world called them pirates. But pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews pioneered equal pay, equal say, social insurance, and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict, and an uncertain future, these brave individuals weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young social entrepreneurs the world over, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models that embody the spirit of creative rebellion I know we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. Since then, thousands around the world have taken up arms and are out causing good trouble. We've captured the story of the movement in a new book, a how-to that helps you turn your ideas into action. This podcast is our regular dose of inspiration and mutiny as we interview some of the best pirates out there, people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. In today's episode, Sam and I are talking to Laura Willoughby, the co-founder of Club Soda, a social impact business and global community that helps people to be more mindful about drinking alcohol. Laura is a former politician, a lifelong campaigner, and someone who is definitely not afraid to challenge social norms. We really think you'll enjoy this one. Welcome, Laura. Thank you very much for joining us on our Be More Pirate podcast. Thank you for having me. I actually came across Club Sober about eight years ago. So I reckon it was six years ago. Congratulations. I think this might actually now be my longest job ever. (laughs) Then double congratulations. The longest job ever with such a positive impact and meaning. I think you wrote a blog about it when I was at the RSA and had emailed it through. And I remember thinking at the time that this looks interesting because the narrative around alcohol felt just really different um, to anything I'd seen before. And you struck me as quite feisty. You seemed like you were just on a proper mission to get this out into the world. And at the time, we were getting so many emails each week, but I remember it standing out. So just to kick off, could you tell us a bit more about your journey towards creating Club Soda? I've been involved in community politics since I was about 14. And then I got elected to Islington Council when I was 23. And being a natural activator, that's a natural way of being for me. I mean, nearly everybody tells me that they're in a really boozy industry, but politics is also a very boozy industry. Um, My whole career was fueled by cheap white wine. Definitely, I'm my father's daughter, and so drinking was never a problem for me. I was always able to go out for those after council meeting drinks and after campaigning drinks and always really hold my own. I'm also in my late 40s now, so I'm that generation of woman who grew up thinking that pure equality was about drinking pints in equal quantity with the blokes in the bar, which I think women in my generation are already beginning to think that that ceased to be a good idea quite a while ago. My drinking went up most when I was in a job I didn't enjoy, a job where I would turn up to events and didn't really want to tell people what I did. And I realised very much that 
the work that I've done all of my adult life is very much a big part of my identity. You know, having a family isn't part of my identity. I don't have some amazing jumping off cliffs hobby. That's not my identity. My activism was my identity. And so I ended up in a job where actually nobody cared if I turned up, which sounds like a fantastic job, right? We'd all want one of those where actually your your days are mostly your own. But not being needed or wanted or having a clear purpose was really difficult for me. And my drinking went up and I was able to find all of the people involved in politics in London who were available for a boozy lunch all the time. And I began to really worry myself and also bore myself and also get quite scared about how much I was drinking. It wasn't every day, but it was every other day. And I'd begun to turn it into a bit of an extreme sport, seeing how much I could drink and still manage to get up the following day. And I knew I had to knock this on the head. You know, like most people in public life, I knew where all of the local council services were, but they were during the day. They were aimed at people who I didn't feel were me. They were aimed at people who had very chaotic lifestyles. I didn't want to go to AA for a whole host of reasons. And one was its linkages with God and a higher power and that sort of stuff. It really didn't float my boat. So I actually paid to go on a one day course. I'm somebody who learns better when I'm talking rather than reading. So all that quitlet that I had at home was actually covered probably in red wine stains and I hadn't read. So I decided that I had to accept that I was the sort of person who needed to put aside a day to go and sort it out. And I went on a course, I paid for a course run by somebody, which was terrible and unethical. And I came out so angry, I never drank again. There we go. Anger's a really great motivational tool, isn't it? But I came out of that whole thing thinking that they're telling people who are dependent drinkers in this room to go away and stop drinking immediately, which is definitely not what you should be doing. Alcohol is incredibly dangerous to detox from. And there has to be something better than this. And so that's really where the idea from Club Soda came from. Because I couldn't believe that you could go into WH Smith and pick up a magazine about dieting. And you could join lots of online dieting clubs and even turn up for a weigh-in once a week. But there wasn't anything that was there to help people change their drinking, whether that was to moderate or go alcohol free. I'm not in the business of telling people what their goals should be, but helping them get there. And I felt that that was something that was missing. And in all this world of tech where everything else is possible, why is there not a good way to connect with other people who are changing their drinking? So that's really where Club Soda started. I wanted to create a community of change about changing drinking habits and supporting people through a self-guided journey. So it's got its roots in, you know, strong self-efficacy and positive behavior change. So I set it up. We set up a really creaky website and we put on some events in the first year. I think by the second year, we came to do some with the RSA in January, but we started to put ourselves out there and see what happened. And it's built from there really. But later on in our first year, so in 2015, I also spoke to Hackney Council. They had some funding available for bits of research around health. And I put in a bid to look at how to change the behaviour of venues towards their non-drinking customers. Because the number one thing that people kept saying to me was, well, it's okay that I'm changing my drinking, but whenever I go to the pub, all I get offered is a, a pint of coke out of a hose. There has to be something better than this. And so we did that bit of research in Hackney, which said, you know, why do we always think it's about the customer who's got to change their behaviour? What do we do to change the behaviour of venues themselves? And that piece of research then opened up ultimately to where we are in Club Soda, which is we're not just about helping individuals change their drinking, but we're looking at also how we begin to tear down some of those societal barriers around changing your drinking that are actually quite old and established and are actually a big deterrent to people changing their drinking habits even if they really wanted to 
It's strange. I really enjoy the comparison of dieting industry and yet with alcohol and other addictions, I shorthand it to blame very much goes into the individual and redirected from the industry or, or different aspects of the industry. So going the other way, which is to remove blame from it being, you know, a, a wanton act, like as I understand it, and I've been reading Gabor Mate recently, kind of from parenting psychology, but so much of it is around other layers. And in addiction work that he's done loads in, it's very much always deeply connected with early stage life trauma, not always, but largely, and emotional gaps. And so then we learn habits of filling those gaps with various other things, whether, you know, depending on what your addiction is. So in the same way that you found a good way to connect to the next level in terms of industry, what do you do when you go the other way, when people that you're working with actually begins to relate to a deeper topic they might want not to drink, but sometimes we're not aware of all the subconscious motivators. And like you said, it can be dangerous detoxifying chemically, but there's also dangers because there's neurological links and trauma links as well. How do you tackle that stuff? It's worth taking a step back, which is alcohol ultimately is a drug. Well, actually, ultimately, it's a poison. Your body processes alcohol like a poison. But it's something that we enjoy the effects of, which is why alcohol has got its place in society that it has. And it's been around for donkey's years. And we have tons of societal myths associated with it. And I mean, this is part of the issue in Britain, which is that if you decide to change your drinking, it must be because you've got a problem. But we're in a society that already suggests that if you want to do that, there's something wrong with you. You've got an addiction and you can't control yourself. But of course, there's actually a big difference between somebody who's drinking every night and somebody who's physically dependent on alcohol. So, for example, the word alcoholic isn't a medical term. It's an identity and it's an identity that's come through the AA and that movement quite unhelpfully for modern times, I think, because AA helps reinforce the idea that it's binary And they have a disease-based model, which suggests that you have a disease that you live with. Whereas I think I was just a dickhead and now I don't want to drink, which is great. I don't have a disease. I have something that I'm doing, which is far more interesting and entertaining in the life that I want now. You know, there isn't a place for alcohol in it. So we need to get rid of some of these cultural preconceptions that are around that either you do or you don't have a problem with alcohol for a start. Because ultimately, once you've drunk over one small drink of alcohol, our body is treating alcohol like a problem. And why is it acceptable to put pressure on someone to have a drink when they're out in a pub, yet you would slap them on the back and say, well done if they'd given up smoking? Isn't that a weird world that we live in? How topsy-turvy is that? And then, of course, we've been taught from a very young age, regardless of childhood trauma and all those things, to deal with every emotion through drinking. Oh, well, if you're sad, you drown your sorrows. If you're happier, you become happier by drinking and all that sort of stuff. So you don't need to have had something big happen to you to become somebody who drinks too much. You just have to exist in a society that's continually trying to get you drunk. Then if you add on to that all sorts of health and psychological issues, then it's no wonder that we all fall back on using alcohol as a coping mechanism. That's a really, really helpful pushback on the nuance of it. I really, really recognise that. And I think probably my question comes from my own reflections, which is what you're describing. I'll I'll go from not drinking to then drinking too much, then give myself a hard time. And I, I do I do see and engage with it binary. So I I really appreciate that extra challenge. It's a bit like being bisexual in the late 90s when I was working at Stonewall, you know, don't talk about that, you know, because you were with a woman yesterday, why are you with a man today? And and if you're moderating, you're drinking, people go, but if you were drinking on Friday with so-and-so, why aren't you drinking on Sunday with me? It's like, oh, you know, just accept that this is a decision I'm making for myself today and it's mine and not yours. Oh, there's so many interesting cultural things and I find it fascinating and also that ultimately I, I started off in my life campaigning around equalities and this is actually just another equalities campaign if you think about it. 
speaking to your point, Sam, as well, there's so many reasons and almost everybody has something buried underneath their day-to-day life that probably needs unpicking. So I don't think you're going to encounter a situation or a person that doesn't have probably something that might be described in some respect as a kind of trauma in the language that we're starting to use now. And when you push work issues even to the head, quite often people will explain that the reasons why they behave and the ways that they behave are because of something that's happened. So I sort of think that's unavoidable. And that if you were afraid of the fact that you might go too deep with somebody, you'd never do anything, if you know what I mean. So I see your point, but I think if you're going to do any kind of activism, you're going to have to just rub up against that. But what I'm quite interested in, Laura, about your description of almost like the messiness of identities is how you've managed to kind of build and sustain your community of Club Soda through that. So I like that you kind of say, oh, you know, it's more fluid, it's messier. But how does that play out in reality when you're actually, you know, holding events with people, like bringing together lots of different people on different journeys? Me and my co-founders are being very belligerent about it, actually, because in an easy world, if you were being a proper grown-up entrepreneur, you would have a very simple proposition You'd do one thing and you'd do it well and you would very clearly define what you do. And I managed to ignore all of that advice in all of the business things I've been in, which (laughs) explains a huge amount, to be honest. And the issue is, is we like to use the term mindful drinker because for me, mindful drinker is a much broader community and therefore it's a bigger community that's far more powerful. So for example, we are all mindful drinkers at some point in time. If you drive to the pub because you want to go to a country pub, on that day, you're a mindful drinker. If you're not drinking tonight because you want to go to the gym tomorrow, you're a mindful drinker. If you've never drunk because of religious reasons, you're a mindful drinker. And if you've never drunk very much, you're a mindful drinker. Or if you're someone like me who's given up drinking, then I describe myself as an alcohol-free mindful drinker. This actually rubs up quite a lot against people who have gone alcohol free because they're really proud of the achievement they've made. They've done something big and hard and being alcohol free just in the same way as, you know, if you've been through AA and use the alcoholic label, then it's something you're very proud of and that identity helps root you in the change that you've made. And I continue to get people saying to me, I'm not a mindful drinker, I'm alcohol free. So the book that you've written isn't for us. Well, actually you are, you're an alcohol free mindful drinker. My colleague is an actually an alcohol free by default mindful drinker. I mean, he drinks so rarely, it's ridiculous. But I want to create this sense of a community that just like the queer community actually has many different flavours within it. And together we are stronger. Rather than talking to pubs about the 4 million people in the UK who don't drink as being their market, I talk to them about the 17 million people who are trying to moderate their drinking in some way. And then if I add in the drivers, the pregnant women and the people who go to the gym tomorrow, that market comes up to about 20 million. And suddenly they go, oh yeah, I should definitely get some more alcohol-free beers in. And yeah, we should do an alcohol-free cocktail night. And oh, it's not just about dry January. We could actually have these drinks in all year round. And then suddenly change happens. And it has happened. The last two years have actually been quite amazing. Pubs have changed a great deal. And you know, during the summer when the Eat Out to Help Out was happening, the media kept going... And Rishi Sunak, who goes to the pub, even though he doesn't drink. And I kept correcting these reports saying, you know, it's been a long time since the pub has only been about drinking. In fact, the food offer is actually really big in pubs. Why is it such a shock that he goes to the pub? Why is there, even though he doesn't drink, actually important? It isn't. Our pubs are a massive part of our community and therefore they should be welcoming to everybody. It's not about the strength of the drink in your glass, which if you think about it, is a really ridiculous way to define a social space just by the strength of what you're drinking as opposed to how much you're spending and how much fun you're having and the experience. 
No, I'd say I'm a big fan of lighting in, in like places. I really have aversion to horrible lights. Anyway. <laughs> and I think there's there's all sorts of layers there, aren't there, with comments about Rishi's, you know, yeah, our media and its fascination with faith. So building on that point and this shift, and particularly you mentioned the last two years, you mentioned the rebellion as it is against peer pressure, and that feels like a really right way to push back. And then also to one aspect of the industry in organisations, so how do you feel about the alcohol industry in terms of producers and, you know, from advertising to drink aware to, to also the huge shift as they've, you know, recognised and monetized the move to more mindful drinking? Uh, did you see the Diageo? They, I can't remember, there's tens of millions of pounds into innovations for new products to kind of race into the market. Do you, do you welcome that? Are you cynical about that? How much do you think the industry has a responsibility and do you think it lives up to it? In Club Soda, we have individuals, venues and drinks producers in our movement. I talk to and work with all of the big drinks brands, something I never expected, by the way, when I first set up Club Soda. I don't think that's out of bounds, partly because we're not an anti-alcohol organisation. We're a pro-social organisation. We also encourage people that even if you can switch down the strength of your drink from a high ABV to a lower ABV drink, so from a 6% beer to a 3% beer, that's a really good start if you want to try and change your drinking habits. But also, I guess, because fundamentally, I'm a liberal, so I'm not in the business of telling you what to do just help you do it if we've got the tools that will help you do it and I also don't believe in prohibition of alcohol in the same way as I've got some strong views about how drugs that aren't currently legal fit into society at the moment so we were never anti-alcohol in our approach and the fact that big brands have brought products onto the market has helped shift this a huge amount because when an organization's got the spending power of Heineken, for example, and they begin to buy up every single bus shelter in every single city in the country and they put on it a 0% beer, that has changed the amount of products on the market. And in so doing, meant that this is the first time probably in history where the alcohol-free drink space has not only started to make a big impression, but is growing quicker than ever before. And they've begun to normalise alcohol free and they wouldn't do that if they hadn't seen that the trends are shifting that way they wouldn't spend all this money in developing product if they didn't think that people wanted an adult flavored alcohol free drink but can i just challenge that slightly because it's kind of ridiculous to think of if this is a social space and therefore it's determined by the strength of your drink same goes for peer pressure for the industry, I don't know what the percentages are of what it produces. You know, it's got a responsibility for the situation that we're in because for generations and generations, it had the same effect, you know, of, of teasing you for not drinking or encouraging drink or, you know, the level of responsibility for its advertising. So it's a huge part of creating the problem. I don't disagree that it's a good thing that it's moving in this direction, but just like the others. I agree, but I don't always think you get changed by not engaging with people. 100%. Because I'm not sure if you know, but before I did this, I ran Move Your Money, which was the bank switching campaign. Lots of people say to me, oh, I can't believe these companies have taken investment from Tesco's or from this business and or have sold part of their brand to a business. I said, well, they could have also gone and got a loan from a bank. And I don't think they're much better either. So how do you begin to grow brands or develop products and get the money you need to do that without engaging somewhere with part of a system that is fundamentally flawed. It's difficult, right? But if you still think you're doing something good in the world, then you might be able to do some of that change from another vantage point. And certainly from Club Soda, I know a couple of things. Our members aren't anti-alcohol. And in fact, they're very keen to make sure their friends don't think they're anti-alcohol. I don't think we're going to ban or prohibit alcohol. And there's definitely lots of organisations that we connect with that do some harder edged campaigning with drinks companies 
But in our role, we do a couple of really important things. One is we spend time talking to brands about why they should continue to invest in this space. And trust me, when COVID came along, when big brands beginning to want to cut their budgets they were beginning to look at whether they should continue to invest in low and no and my view is is that they should because at the end of the day it's drinks as I said to one big company I said if you're telling me you don't think you can make a drink that people want to drink that doesn't have alcohol in then that's you know to me a sign of failure not a sign of budget cutting you're telling me that you can't do anything which has basically got ethanol in it which is a a massive flavor enhancer and makes any old shit taste good so if you tell me you can't do it and you don't have the marketing can learn how to sell these products differently then fine bow out but I think people want good drinks and if you think you can make good drinks and go for it We can challenge them about the way they begin to talk about changing drinking and using knowledge around behaviour change to inform a bit more about what they do and being a bit more open and honest about it. I've actually often got the harshest words for the government about how we deal with alcohol in this country because actually public spending is woeful and that's partly because there's no health economics around alcohol use like there is, for example, around diabetes. So there's tons of investment If I wanted to set a company now that dealt with diabetes, I'd get loads of funding thrown at me. But because alcohol doesn't represent a saving for the NHS, even though we all know it probably would do, there's no money to go with it. There's no investment. There's no government initiative money and all of that sort of stuff. So there's lots of different levers that need to be pulled, really, to change this. And there are levers to pull in every part of the sector, including the public, which is, you know, we like alcohol we like what it does to us we enjoy using it and if that's something that people want to continue to do then we also need to look at how we help people who want to change it and have a more open and honest conversation and be willing to switch our ideas around what we drink yeah exactly when I try to describe what I mean when I say someone's a pirate it's almost an embrace of a more questions than answers approach sort of embrace of a messier and multiple levers approach to change that really speaks to the reality of what's happening. It's a lot more honest. And I think when you say pirate or you say rebel, sometimes people can imagine that it's very binary, that you either are a rebel or you're not. And actually, it's more about knowing when to rebel and where and with whom. So I like that you keep all the passion and the purpose and sort of intention, but you are also tackling the issues on many, many levels whether you like it or not to achieve change there is a level of pragmatism that has to happen and deciding which in your case which ships you're going to board right because people keep wanting to talk to me about minimum unit pricing it's not a discussion I want to enter into in behavior change terms it's one of the punitive behavior change tools the biggest drinkers in this country are the richest people not the poorest people and so minimum unit pricing doesn't really matter to them it's not on my radar in terms of the things that I think need to be changed the most so I'm happy for other people to go and fight whether minimum unit pricing is necessary or not but I am more interested in some of the other positive lever changes and trying to get the government to stop continue talking about alcohol harm and talking about the benefits of change is a far more interesting discussion and more likely to achieve change in society. I think you'd be more likely to go, oh, what, you mean I could be more productive at work and set up my own business if maybe I've got some alcohol out of my diet rather than always going, oh, alcohol is going to make you, <laughs> is, is, is bad for you. It's a sort of a similar parallel with the conversations I have around climate change, that there's a sort of an individual response to it versus a systemic response. And you're either in one camp or you're in the other. We had a good event a couple of days ago with a marine biologist and she put a provocation to the group saying, actually, some of us, the activists, the people who supposedly care the most about this are just getting in the way because we're so obsessed with getting it exactly right. 
she's from Switzerland. She was saying in Switzerland, it takes like 15 years to get certain things approved because they're lobbied by environmental groups when actually the switch to say like electric cars just needs to happen. Like they might not be perfect. You know, the materials and the supply chain might not be sustainable, but just get started, get somewhere. It's because in any campaign, you need an ecosystem of different voices and people doing different things. Mm. So when I worked for Stonewall, Stonewall would never endorse anything that Peter Tatchell and Outrage did. But I can tell you, they always made sure he knew when everything was happening. There was a need for that. And in the financial world, I can't believe that I say this, but somebody needs to be taking on the regulation piece. We're not going to break all the banks tomorrow. But what regulation does is give power back to the consumer and balance the capitalist system so that the businesses don't have all the power that there is somebody looking out for the consumer and actually regulation in this country particularly around finance is quite woeful and then you look at even from water all the way through the ombudsman and regulators are actually very weak and ineffective and could be a lot stronger and having people who are interested in regulation is hard to find at the best of times but you need somebody in there fighting for better regulation of all sorts of things while other people are fighting for other parts of change in the system because systems are exactly that they are multi-layered there's lots of levers to press and you need people pressing all of them in different ways the first thing about you know personal responsibility trauma and you've, you've much more nuanced and interesting approach second thing about you know the the corporates it's their fault etc and, and thank you again for a more nuanced approach I mean, I have to admit, I, I kind of slightly come to it thinking of like the big alcohol companies as like, you know, cartels as representations of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and, you know, alcohol as a subjugation of the working and like got these kind of deep seated views. And I'm just trying to dig into my own history books of them. And like, I've read the history of the pub and various other things. And I, so I, I have got an association. The reason I say is because you said you equate it to an equality campaign. I've got this kind of like thought and I'm touching on lots of different inequalities there. You also said there's, an, there's a, 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 perhaps for me, unexpected difference between the, the likelihood of rich and poor. So touching on some of those things, how do you see it as an inequality and where is the inequality? Like Usually it's the same people who get screwed over and the same people who make a bunch of money. That's a bit of a reductive view, but it's a view that I have of the world. So who are the ones profiting and who are the ones who need their equality being fought for? Yes, although that's not necessarily the part of the equality balance that I'm looking at so for example we do lots of work with pubs about changing what they serve and for me that's about an equality of experience it means that you can turn up in the pub whoever you are and instead of being poured half a pint of coke out of a hose and it being shoved at you like you're 12 and about to go and wait in the car park for your dad you get the same experience that somebody when they look at me in the pub don't go oh god she's only drinking an alcohol-free beer they go excellent there's a woman who's going to definitely buy dessert she's going to spend as much money as somebody else in this pub so that experience that she has when she comes through this door just has to be as good and that's the same as I feel about somebody with a disability being able to access our pubs and bars that they should be able to have as equal experience when they walk into that venue as anybody else so it's not the biggest aspect of equality campaigning but it is ultimately a campaign that says everybody has a right in this place and it's not about the strength of the drink in their glass and then moving on it's about how you feel when you're out socializing with friends why should you feel uncomfortable and put under pressure which is basically called bullying just because you're not drinking and another example of this is I I spoke to somebody in the city who said to me that there was a young graduate who started in their company and didn't drink because under 25s drink less than anybody else their boss white man 50s biggest drinker in this country, rich white man in 50s, took them out for their first night out and pressured them to drink. You know, man in a position of authority over this new young young recruit. And this recruit got so drunk, he lost the company laptop, which was a sackable offence. Now, I think that's workplace bullying. 
but you know they would have laughed that off and probably done some you know oh well he's got a hangover isn't he a great lad all of that sort of stuff so much of how we encounter the world as an adult is through the prism of alcohol we forget that we are very alcocentric in our approach a great example is also if you've ever been to a corporate event anywhere where they do a drinks reception you get served a nice glass of wine on a tray as you walk in but if you're not drinking you get to serve yourself a warm jug of orange juice at the back of the room concentrated orange juice as well it's not even any nice stuff it's crap and that even happens at some of the biggest companies in the country one of the big accountancy firms their alcohol free option is Tizer what the fuck's that about you know come on it's partly what I had a little bit of go at the RSA about as well you know they always invite you for wine and in so doing they exclude anybody who doesn't drink for religious reasons from coming to their events join us for wine this evening well why not join us for drinks and there are drinks for everybody we gave back our new radicals award to Nesta and the Observer because the Nesta is a big charity right they always do this lovely little exercise at the start of every event where they get everyone to line up by the furthest distance they travelled so she can tell really early on in the room that loads of people will be driving back later that evening yet they then even at a health event only serve you wine and beer and then you get one jug of orange juice at the end of the room for someone else and I'd spoke to this about it so many times that when we got our new radicals award and we turned up and there was champagne and crap orange juice we just gave back our award but what you realize is is it's you're a very alcocentric society in that room were people who were driving there were muslims there was a woman breastfeeding and there were a couple of people from grenfell campaign who were getting awards who had gone through recovery and hadn't drunk yet they had not even been thought about once at that event your perspective is so refreshing and i think what you've done again and again taking away from the binary negative conversation so with this really comprehensive and nuanced approach what's your view on the other big kind of conversations around legalization or decriminalization and let's look at not just drugs but like within prostitution in the case for sex workers because both of those are the two huge informal economies with so much money so much exploitation where a similar kind of liberal approach has been seen to work in other areas what if you were in charge would you be taking a similar approach to both of those i think in the last few years What I've learned from building Club Soda and being on Bethnal Green Ventures and learning about service design is the most important thing is to begin to ask the right questions and not necessarily know the answers. And actually, I'm very much more passionate about this now. I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the nuances. And I definitely, for a long time, haven't spoken to a lot of the people most affected by these issues. But what I do know is how we deal with drugs at the moment, how we deal with prostitution and people trafficking and all of those things isn't working at the moment and let's not even get onto the prison system but what it does take is bravery it takes bravery to ask the right questions to bring people into a room and to have a really grown-up adult conversation and I really hate that our politics doesn't ever want to do that and so what we end up with is very poor services and poor responses and knee-jerk responses to problems and so when it comes to drugs we certainly have an issue that criminalizing drugs just it kills a different set of people in a different way than the taking of drugs itself and therefore we clearly haven't got the right system to deal with that we don't have the right criminal justice system either and when it comes to sex work 
we don't have a very good way of separating who we feel is there through coercion and people trafficking and those who believe that they're there through choice and want to have some choice in that and also what we believe sex work means I mean you know there are many transactional types of relationship in this world and that go from sex work all the way through to marriage and you know how do you decide whether one's better than another I do not have all the answers to these but I do know that unless we have some brave politicians we never begin to change any of this until we bring lots of different voices into a room begin to hear all sorts of potential ways and look through ways of designing the, our world better we will never get to the right answers and we'll keep basically polishing the turd which is what happens with you know some policy changes seem so big but really they're just shifting the chairs on the bloody titanic aren't they they're not really changing very much and that makes me incredibly sad and it's probably why I'm not in formal politics anymore and also because I'm a liberal democrat and we don't get elected I think if I was to engage in politics again I would be definitely more in the how do we begin to have big brave conversations and begin to shift things fundamentally in a longer term one of the things we've learned is that change is harder when you try and take everything on and actually the phrase we've used lots is small bold actions to get there but whilst you are on a roll and thinking big you know such a lot of success that you've had in so many ways as you've explained where does it go like if you're really thinking big as you clearly are able to do what's your dream for the whole thing in another six years I guess this is quite a normal thing I don't feel we're a success yet I, I continually compare myself to other things in this space and wish we could do more and you know as everyone else we really struggled to keep our head above water and so success is an interesting concept and I don't really have any big bold future targets actually for Club Soda we know some things that we want to achieve in the next few years. I'm really keen that we are approached to behaviour change and communities of change. I would like to become slightly more accepted by government and others. It's really interesting to me that I never wanted government to be the client of Cup Soda. We weren't a public service provider. I wanted what we did to be wanted and tested and needed and used by the public so that we knew we were building the right thing for the public and not building for government because the minute you start building for government you don't end up building the things that the public really want to use so right now we're now beginning to talk to the public sector a little bit more but until they begin to want to put some money into changing people's relationship with alcohol there won't be that much there but I don't know I guess I still need the approval of the public sector because it's my background and I guess <laughs> I still want them to go yeah Laura you're doing the right thing we can't afford you but you're doing the right thing <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel exactly the same when people ask about the success or big ambitions of the of pirates I almost feel that it works when you are so clear on like the feeling of change when it happens almost like you must know like when you get some great success stories through the community you can kind of sense that something's shifting but you don't necessarily have targets or measurements that you're like working endlessly towards and you can also then see the opportunities when they arise when someone approaches you and goes hey do you want a partner and you kind of go yes that's exactly the next move for us that feels antithetical to how we're supposed to approach things but it feels much more useful to me I'm not sure if you've ever had any business mentors for pirates or anything, but they all like to go, right, you need to build this product and you need to sell it this many times. And that's the model that they like. And that's never worked for us because that's not how we work as founders. That's not who we are. It's not what excites us. 
and also it doesn't allow us to take the opportunities that have come along and if you had said to me in 2015 that we would have done the first ever alcohol-free drinks festival and that we'd then end up doing seven of them I would have laughed at you because the thought of running a festival isn't really me either but that's what we done you know I ran not a piss up in a brewery it makes me incredibly happy it was an idea I had it we made it happen it went really well we're doing some more of it and it's great and we'll see where that goes and I don't mind if the festival's not there in five years' time. I'm not trying to build Glastonbury because if all the drinks are mainstream in the future and people can find them in more places, then actually that's that job done and I'm sure there'd be something else to do instead. But yeah, that mainstream way of building business in the build something, you you make it better, you grow it and you do one thing and you do it well, doesn't seem to work. And I felt very guilty about that for a long while. And now I feel less guilty in realising that I would have given up Club Soda years ago if that's the way we would have gone because I'd have been bored. I was reading this really, uh, it's right behind me, it's book. It's kind of, it's an, it's kind of big anthropological kind of rethink and its central argument is fundamentally that we've always been sold that human beings are driven by their conflict and competition for one another and that's been the explanation of every human advance all the way through to the justification of capitalism and the book goes right back to the dawn of mankind and the separation of Neanderthals and man language and everything else and there's this really interesting breakout into mankind's need humankind's need for liberation mental escape and the role of drugs and alcohol as part of that and what i didn't realize is that alcohol goes as you know way 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 you know right back to the origins of of humanity or some you know along with plant medicines and various other things but drunkenness only is a phenomenon of a few hundred years and the relationship appears to be the the author suggests the relationship is community diaspora So when you had communities that didn't travel as far, alcohol appeared both ceremonially and from a kind of relaxation and community building point of social cohesion, etc. But then when those communities broke up and they were separated and people felt more isolated, drunkenness appeared as a phenomenon. And as we stand at the whatever point we are in a fucking process of a pandemic, lockdowns and others there seems to be a reappraisal of the importance of community. Consistently, it's like the number one thing I hear that people hope the, the importance of community remains after this thing is is hopefully passed. Do you think, therefore, that there is another approach to a healthy relationship with alcohol that has a connection to a sense of community? Do you, do you see any synergy in that? Well, yes, because I believe pubs are really important for us. They are Britain's living rooms and we would be a far poorer society if we didn't have those space for congregate meeting for meeting up eating and talking what's interesting though is there is a big shift at the moment so I'm really excited about what's happened over the last five years you know five years ago I was talking about mindful drinking and changing drinking and it was me and a load of women in their 40s generally middle-aged white middle-class women talking about changing drinking because you know I think everyone realized that you can go to the gym as often as you like and eat as much kale as you like you undid all that hard work if you were downing a bottle of wine in the evening. And then suddenly about three years ago, young women started to talk on social media about changing drinking and doing a lot more on Instagram. And then this last 12 months has been young men. Suddenly I've got, you know, more young men wanting to write blogs than ever before. And I think that what's beginning to happen by having different voices, because there's been a dominant voice around changing drinking over the last 70 years, and it's been Alcoholics Anonymous. And actually a lot of what Alcoholics Anonymous believes around changing drinking has seeped very much into our public consciousness. Like, you know, somebody said to me, oh, are you sure you can go to the pub? Yeah, I'm not going to just suddenly vault the bar and, and put the optics in my mouth, you know, just because that's been a dominant narrative. It doesn't mean it's actually how it all works. 
so the language is changing it's being framed in a more positive way but it's not being framed in a and therefore if you're not drinking you have to stay at home and be miserable it's being framed in a very pro-social way which says that this is all about going out and having a great time and being present but also looking after your mental health and getting more out of your time and being more productive and so I can't really talk to the history of how our relationship with alcohol and drunkenness has come but what I can say is that underneath a lot of this both in terms of people's fear of change but also in what people want in their future is still to be social and connected to others and the fact that you know you can now eat a dinner in most pubs and it's not just about drinking shows that there's been a shift over the last you know 20 years and that our evenings are about being convivial about being social about being connected and I think that will continue to be the case and like I say it will matter less about the strength of the drink in your glass and more about the surroundings the lighting the music whether you definitely get a seat which is always my you know I'm not standing in a bar anymore it's far too boring personally I like a place that will bring me constant hot water so I can make my own tea but those are the things that will matter but underneath it all is we still have a desire to be social and connected to each other that's what we should hold on to because that's what we need to provide and you know we're going to lose lots of our social spaces out of this pandemic more than anything else actually and those regular places that we'd found on the high street that we really enjoyed going to and particularly in small you know market towns where the pubs might be some of the only things left on the high street we will miss those and we need to start rebuilding our social spaces again yeah completely agree with all of that Drinking on a night out is a law of diminishing returns, you know, think about it, it's the first two hours that you get the most of. Who says that an evening out has to be four hours and getting completely wankered? I mean, you know, it isn't. It's about the people we spend time with and the quality of that time. And we'll want spaces to do that in still because, you know, we all live in small homes. I'm fascinated by this. And I have to say, during lockdown, good non-alcoholic beer has been a game changer for me because that that kind of habitual, it's five o'clock, like the kids have been mental, it's homeschool. And all of those triggers in me, like reward system. And like you say, every single circumstance, it's been a good day, been a bad day, been a different day, been a stressful day, beer. The arrival of really good quality non-alcoholic beer satisfies all of that. And then you get to the other side of it. It's great. So amongst Club Soda, what are the most popular non-alcoholic recommendations you've got? I could do a whole podcast just on tea. What's really interesting for me is is that this is still a new emerging space. And just to say, guys, we should all be really proud. Britain is the innovation capital of the world in low and no, and we're the fastest growing market. We're leading the world in low and no, believe it or not. It makes me laugh a little bit, like, we're the biggest drinkers, and now we're leading the way in this. It's like, how duplicitous can we possibly be? But yeah, we are leading the way in low and no. And you're right, beer has been the hero category in all of this. So big drop beers and Lucky Saint and the girls that drop bear beer, you know, really, really good quality beers that have won in blind taste tests against full strength beers. I was just trying to look up this one that I'd seen recently that did really appeal to called Three Spirit Drinks because it looks a bit like Hippy Dippy and I was like, oh, and it tells you you get some kind of like, I don't know, warm buzz. I've been using their nightcap all through lockdown. It's my evening on the rocks, a glass of nightcap. It's got all the right things to help you sleep like valerian and stuff. You know, I'm a sucker for anything with an active ingredient in it. You know, why do you think I'm into tea so much? I found all of the 1960s Peruas that give you a buzz, you know. What's uh, this world? You- I don't know about <laughs> Well, you talk, Sam, about the fact that we as humans want to alter our mental state. I mean, that's no different. And, you know, there are other ways to do it. And they're not as quick and necessarily as effective as alcohol. But certainly I like things with active ingredients in. And Hit me up with the tea recommendations, dude. What, what's what's That sounds very fascinating. 
well I also never drank tea until about five years ago and then I've learned about single estate loose leaf tea if you want to look up my dealer they're called commons which are a tea house in Bath and they do some really good tea or postcard teas in London if you can get a 1960s Meng Hai that's been laid down since the 60s then you can get a bit tea drunk it's wonderful. That is genius. 1960s men. Oh, this is this is definitely. But it's about it's about five pounds a gram. It's not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> You've opened up a new avenue for Sam, I think. Yeah, yeah. I found some quite good mushroom mushroom tea. Kind of got me through part of lockdown. So this is. We'll have a tea conflab another time. Yeah, but basically, guys, that. if you want to try some great alcohol-free drinks, so get yourself a mixed case from Wise Bartender. You won't like everything, just in the same way as you don't like all alcohol. Sometimes people drink one alcohol-free beer and go, oh, I don't like any of them. And you have to go, nah, come on. There are different drinks. There are different styles of beers. You'll find something you like. There are spirits from like Everleaf, which if you're an environmentalist, is probably one of your must-go-tos, which is made by Paul, who was originally trained as a biologist and then ran bar- cocktail bars in London. He's made an exquisite drink, you know. So there's lots to try. And when we get to have a festival again, you can all come and try them there. I'll be there. Laura, this has been amazing. I feel like we've learned a lot. This conversation really complements some of the other episodes we've recorded. I can always tell when we've hit on a real pirate because it's so much about not focusing and and kind of dwelling on all the negative energy on what's wrong, but really just using that creative drive to go over in, in your own lane and start something new that is attractive enough to draw people to it I mean that's what we always say like break the rule but rewrite one and wait for other people to follow you because they will and if you've got that intention behind it and it's ultimately better (laughs) then you know I was frightened of doing my own thing for such a long time and I'm so glad I did and I wished I hadn't waited Mm. so even if you start something and it doesn't quite pan out the way you want and in fact I did start looking at something else first but I learned a lot through doing that that I then brought into Club Soda so don't ever stop yourself from exploring something and it may only be a tiny cog in the overall big wheel of things that need to be changed but maybe if you can beaver away at that bit and bring other people on it doesn't have to be the biggest community it just needs to be an effective community that will help you change that then you can always make things happen and you will come from a unique perspective we are at the end of the day a bundle of our experiences I never thought I would be doing something about changing drinking but here I am so great you hit so many things there that i would say start small make it authentic critical connections not mass and own your own story to kind of weaponize it i just feel like i've learned so much this conversation has been an absolute privilege and it's probably clear like lots of these thoughts have been going on and around in my life so to talk about it from your broad perspective but for it to connect personally with like you know all these kind of inner wranglings as well has just been wonderful thank you very very much indeed and i'm in such awe of the work that you guys do as well so you know you've done exactly that you've taken the bit of the the machine that you know you can do which is engage other people in following the things that they want to campaign on and change and somebody needs to facilitate that never underestimate the power of good facilitation and bringing those people together in a space which is what you've done it's been fantastic (laughs) 